The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, take those bottle rockets off the cat and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 461 with guest Stephen Forte, recorded live Tuesday, June 30th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, the NRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who truly loves animals, especially with a good wine, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here for your listening pleasure. Hey, Richard, what's up? Oh, you know, nothing but good stuff. No rest for the wicked. That's what they tell me. Hey, let's just include Forte in on the intro. Hey, man, what's happening? Not much, guys. He might as well be a co-host. He's done, what, a dozen of these things. Yeah, right. You're <laughs> honorary. If Richard ever keels over, I'm calling you, man. You're, you're right, next in line. Good. As long as I don't have to move to Canada. <laughs> nice. Man, you missed some great pizza at Pepe's, but we won't go into that now. Hey, it's time for Better Know Framework. <laughs> All right. All right. So, Richard, do you know the difference between a system.timers.timer and a system.windows.forms.timer? I do not know the difference. Please enlighten me. Well, I'll tell you. All right. There are two timers in the .NET framework. You know what a timer is. You should, from the old VB days, you drag yeah, a timer. It raises off. an event after a certain amount of time. Is exactly. So, the Windows Forms timer is obviously for use in Windows Forms only. Right. And it, its accuracy only goes to 55 milliseconds. And it's single-threaded. Yeah, it's single-threaded. Yeah. So if you, if you set the, you know, you actually set the interval in milliseconds, but 55 is as low as it goes. If you set it for one millisecond, doesn't matter. 55 milliseconds. Right. Uh, if you use a system timers timer, you have much greater accuracy. But it's multi-threaded, so that timer event's going to happen on its own thread. So if you expect to, to uh, change any Windows um, you know, UI, you can't do that without first using the iSynchronize Invoke interface to do a invoke of a delegate, uh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you, now, this is an area especially for you, that whole asynchronous Windows behavior thing. Yeah, so basically what it comes down to is if you want a timer on a form and you're going to update some UI... Use the timer, you the Windows Forms timer. But if you're going to do something that doesn't access the UI, you can use a, a system timers timer, you know, which is in your components on the on a Windows form. It's just that you will not be able to like access your controls and do any UI stuff. Right. And how accurate is the systems timer? It's to a millisecond. To the millisecond. And does it do military time? Does it do military? I mean, can you specify? What do you mean, military time? 24-hour clock. It's a timer. <laughs> you tell a number of milliseconds, and it 
What do you mean? Does it do military? That's the dumbest <laughs> question I ever heard. If I have my computer set to military time. Will this clock work? <laughs> you set it as an interval of milliseconds. You don't tell it at four p at oh four hundred hours. I want you to fire. How many milliseconds is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So if you're in the military, this is not going to work for you. I think that's what you're saying. I heard there's an open source implementation called iTimer. Yeah. And it works to 42 milliseconds. Who invited him? I don't know. know. So, Richard, uh, this is the time for you to read an email. I have an email and probably one that Steve will appreciate. Hi, Carl and Richard. Just wanted to say a quick hello. Well overdue since I've been listening to your show from episode... One. Oh. Not only is .NET Rocks both informative and entertaining, but it also shows me that there are others out there who like to talk about .NET, and I'm not just weird. One of my rules is two times is a coincidence, but three times is a pattern, and I practice that faithfully with your show. If a certain technology gets mentioned three or more times and I don't already know about it, then it's time for me to get reading. Wow, so I should pick really random technologies and put them on the show three times just to mess with them. (laughs) however i'd like to bring up a recurring topic that you probably wish you could put to bed by now specifically the question about identity versus guid as the primary key in a table there are three key points that i'd like to raise one the reason i would use guid a big random number as the primary key is because i can give my objects a guid identifier in the domain layer and link them by guids without requiring a trip to the database and that once I have this unique identifier, why should I add yet another unique identifier? Two, the point that an identity column primary key will improve your write time since the primary key is clustered needs reconsidering. A clustered index is intended for a write time penalty with an expectation of a read time optimization. This only benefits where the table will be read in the order of the key, ascending or descending, or when restricting by the range of the key. Since, as we both agree that the identity value should not be exposed to the business user, then it is unlikely that the table will ever need to be read in order of its identity, but rather by the keys such as name, date, location, and other external identifiers. Actually, if you turn the clustering of your table off and your table has only occasional deletes, then your write performance will be comparable to that if you had a clustered identity primary key, because in both scenarios, the rows will tend to be added to the end of the data. Aha. And three... When your volume of inserts is such that you need to worry about whether your primary key is random rather than sequential value, then you're probably better restructuring your data for write optimization, such as splitting the writes between two or more tables or even between two or more databases and then amalgamating the data later. However, that said, when it comes to large reporting databases, especially when you're setting up facts and dimensions, nothing links data together faster than an integer. Ah. So, And so, while I love my goods, and I did say I was weird... Identity certainly has its place. I better stop now because I can go on about this sort of thing for hours. Thanks again. Keep it coming. And how about penciling in an Aussie trip someday for real? Ooh. And that's from David Swan, down under. David, thanks for your email. We'll send you out a mug. Uh, You're totally wrong, but I'm okay with that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know... You're uh, arguing that you should be using GUIDs, Richard? Oh, he's pro good. There's no two ways he's pro good. And I mean, and his first reason, the idea that, hey, I can generate GUIDs against my objects, and then I don't have to go to the database for the identifier, is a fairly reasonable one in the sense that the probability of a GUID being already used in a database after you generate it is almost zero. So you do have that ability to create unique identifications in an application independent of the database. Whereas if you use a traditional identity, I have to go to the database to get it. Still doesn't make it a good idea. Well, I'm just kidding. I don't know. The second point was the one that I really struggle with, which is this whole thing about clustered versus non-clustered. Look, every day, every table is written in order no matter what. All that happens when you cluster it is you tell it what the order is. Yeah. And the real issue here, and this was what Paul Randall was talking about, is that if you're write sensitive, if the rate of writing matters, then uh, the non-sequentialness of GUIDs causes harm to your database, to your table. It, it actually really makes it hard to write those out. It slows down the rate of write. But if the write rate isn't important, it's not a big deal. The write rate? The write rate. Is the write rate right? Unless, yeah, it unless you're clustering something other than your primary key, which I have argued for decades about ever since I was in grammar school. I would always say argue over some cluster your database index for that table 
over something you're going to do between clause in your where clause or an order by. And he brings up a good point is that when you are going to search a query, you usually are going to say, show me customers between customer ID X and customer ID Y, because in theory, that's unique. And no one knows those numbers because they're irrelevant to the application. But you might search between order date. And I think that would make a better candidate for a clustered index. So you're right, Richard, when you're clustering on the primary key. But I think that um, he has a point when you're clustering not by the primary key. And the number of scenarios where you're actually going to cluster by something, the big thing about clustering on the primary key is if you're doing unique row pulls. So if you're going after a customer, you're going to pull the individual customer, and the clustered index is great for that. Other than pairing the right, the reads are awesome. I actually think you have it in reverse. A, if you're doing unique pulls, you don't want a, a clustered index as much. You want a clustered index when you're doing a between clause. You get a far better response time when you're doing your between, and your between is on a, a clustered index. If you're looking for one thing in an index, it's, having a clustered index is not going to really be all that um, much advantageous for you. It doesn't make much difference compared to a non-clustered index, but the, the you know the same is true either way. Cluster versus non-cluster, just where is it going to be stored? So, uh, you know, the seek time is essentially the same. It's a question of when it f- actually fetches the data. What does it need to fetch? Where I see the clustered index having advantage, and then that single row pull, it makes sense, is if I'm pulling the whole customer, then the fact that I don't have to go read into an index, get my row identifier, and then go to the table to get it, to get the actual data... You know, that's slower than if I use the clustered index because I'm pulling the whole row. Welcome to another stellar episode of SQL Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they should have an actually a way to end this debate once and for all. And the way you end this debate once and for all is rename a clustered, a clustered index and remove the word index from the title. Because in reality, it's not an index. It's just how it's physically sorted on the database. Right? So a clustered index, technically speaking, is not even a real index according to SQL Server. So if they change the nomenclature, it might change the debate. Yeah, I mean, it's still treating an index as part of a query plan, so it's, it is an index, but I, I admit it's a different thing, and it can't be compared easily. Uh, I, I, you know, if you're going to end this debate, I tend to agree with Paul Randall, and he says goods in, as clustered index, bad. <laughs> okay, and with that, <laughs> that ends the mail reading. Nice, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, first 10 minutes of the show, we're already, you know, into a database debate. And, uh, well, we were going to talk about data access anyway. Sure. We just, uh, I guess we don't really need to introduce Stephen. I mean, he's been on the show a million times before. Just blog Stephen Forte and you'll find out all about him. But he does have a bio. You, uh, what are you currently doing, Stephen? Well, I'm currently doing a lot of things. I'm standing in my living room talking to you guys on the phone. But to me, what I'm doing, what I'm doing full time, like is employment seeking. Um, in between climbing mountains, I'm the chief strategy officer of Telerik, the uh, the uh, ASP.NET and Windows forums and Silverlight and WPF tools vendors, amongst other things. .NET tool vendors. That's great. Yeah, they've all, of course they're a huge sponsor of the show. And and uh, how's how are they doing? I mean, we don't talk to doing, them much. You know, they're they're uh, they're out there over on the other side of the planet. They're doing well. Just uh, geared up. Their um, their mid year release has has been out and successful, and everyone seems to be happy. So uh, they're doing pretty well. That's great. It's great to hear. So we're talking about uh, what are we talking about, Richard? Uh, well, Steve put together this great demo a while back where he showed all the different new technologies that Microsoft's using for data access, any framework and a story and oh, so forth. I thought, right. you know, this is an interesting conversation because I, I feel like the way we get at data from Microsoft, this conversation is very confused right now. So I, I wanted to sort of debate through all these different methods based on, on Steve's research. Okay. So you're basically, you know, trying to put a little common, bring a little common sense to people who argue you should use this when, you should use that when, you know, this one sucks, stay away from that one, don't use this one. That's uh, what you're really trying to to get some clarity around, right? Well, one of the things that I'm looking for is not necessarily saying, you know, I'm trying to get clarity more around the ones that says, 
blanket statements like this sucks, never use this, or always use that. And I feel that the situation warrants, many different situations warrant different technologies. There's so many different uh, things that we can choose from out there that I think sometimes, the, I think quite frankly, the marketplace is confused. Yeah, I, I, uh, I never pay attention to people who say never use this or never use that. Or always use this or always yeah. use that as well, I think, by Converse. But by the same token, I don't get the sense that Microsoft has a grand data access strategy that they have. They've, they've said that we're going to need four ways to get at the data and you're going to build this one and you're going to build that one and you're going to build that one. It, it feels more like these guys have ideas and they try them and it's up to us to figure out how to use them or if we even should. Yeah. yeah, and I think this is part of Microsoft's greatest strength, and it's also, um, conversely, one of their greatest weaknesses. And it, it goes back to the earliest days of how Microsoft was run, where, you know, you would be a almost an entrepreneur inside of, of Microsoft. You'd work on something kind of nights and weekends. You'd prototype it. You'd go to Bill Gates or somebody else, usually Bill Gates, and they would grant you a team and a budget and say, this is great. And then or the converse would happen, and you would, you know, it wouldn't work. So the problem is we would get many different ways to do this same thing. Think back 10 years ago. We had form packages for every, you know, day of the week, right? We had, you know, Visual Basic forms, J++ forms. Um, I, I don't even want to list them all. There were Outlook forms, there were Office yeah. forms, there were C++ forms, J++ forms, you name it. So that was a great thing because there's a lot of innovation, but it was also a bad thing because it confused the marketplace. And the same thing, you know, then, of course, what happens is a great kind of consolidation happens and the best from each package kind of gets consolidated. And that's, you know, that's what happened about eight, seven or eight years ago when the .NET framework really kind of took hold. It took the best from all of those packages. And and that's kind of happening in data right now. As I said, it's a great strength because there's lots of different data access methodologies being produced by Microsoft, right? But of course, that same at the same time, that's a weakness because for the guy that just wants to get his application out the door, they're spending a lot of time just figuring out which one do I use. So, Steve, what's wrong with ADO.net? Why wouldn't we just use that? Well, I think I think that nothing particular maybe like stands out as absolutely wrong with ADO.net, but what's happened is applications, or maybe not applications, but the way we've developed applications have started to evolve. Well, and they're we getting big. Into, and, um, yeah, I was going to say they're they're getting big. They're getting big and and writing all that same ADO.net code over and over and over again for. You know, for the to do all the same cruddy stuff is just not something that people want to do. You spend a lot of if you have a, an application with lots of tables and lots of lots of data and store procedures and things that you got to write wrappers around. You know that you, now you're it just screams for some sort of higher level uh, tool. And I think that's what you're talking about here. These tools and technologies that we're using are tools that are higher level to abstract away some of the menial work of accessing that I stuff. I tend to agree and disagree with you. I agree with you that uh, we're doing a lot of repetitive things, and I'll come back to that in a second. Where I disagree with you slightly is that applications are getting big. Applications are no bigger than they were 10 years ago. I suppose um, right. We are just adding different services. We're, you know, they're getting maybe a little more complex because we have to talk asynchronously to things, and there's cloud, and there's web services, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really what I meant, is complex. What's interesting is that I think that the way we've developed these applications that are, you know, maybe a little more complex has, has definitely evolved. We're looking at things more having a domain layer where that domain layer um, speaks about the, you know, the application's business logic and core domain logic. And we, and now what happens is developers are kind of looking at having a domain layer. Then that domain layer has to talk to this, you know, layer of stored procedure calls or T-SQL calls. And I think, quite frankly, you know, there's been the movement is to kind of, as you just said, abstract that away, right, yeah. and and move one layer of abstraction higher than the core ADO.NET stack. So I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with ADO.NET, but I do think that applications are evolving kind of faster than ADO.NET has evolved, and that's why you see, you know, a newer generation of data access kind of coming out. Is there also this whole angle on the, you know, feeding data to Silverlight type thing that is uh, is a driver to new data access methods? 
Well, definitely, because Silverlight does not allow you to talk to, to does not allow you to have ADO.net in its application. So right. in Silverlight and in Azure, you can't just directly communicate with a backend database. It has to be done asynchronously through a service, which is a best practice, but also something that developers are trying to get their hands around. So if you were going to do that with ADO.net, you'd have to do something ugly like have an ADO.net um, you know, service, so to speak, on a server, use WCF to wrap up the results, which presumably speaking would be a data set, and developers seem to have a love-hate relationship with data sets, and then kind of send that down through WCF service to your Silverlight client, and then work on it there. Yeah. So uh, so that then the question becomes, when, you know, all of these technologies, well, first of all, what's the list? You, you obviously have a, have a list of these technologies. Let's just list them off. Oh, the list is pretty numerous. I mean, first there's just plain old ADO.net. Okay, right? That's, that's the first on the list. And then there are the Microsoft offerings, which would be the link to SQL project and also the entity framework project. And then there is also the whole kind of third-party ORM technology out there, which the entity framework more or less um, would probably be considered part of. So, you know, in the whole ORM category... You have, you know, open source versions, you have commercial versions and all the like. Right. Uh, what about Astoria? Well, Astoria is an interesting case because Astoria is not necessarily a data access technology insofar as it's a restful service built on top of your particular, you know, application. So you could go in and create a bunch of just plain old normal CLR objects. And, and just you have regular collections. You know, you can just code it by hand. You can have a person and then a people collection, and you could expose that through Astoria as a RESTful service. And those objects only live in memory on your application, don't interact with any kind of database. However, what makes Astoria pretty interesting is that it can sit on top of uh, the entity framework or third-party ORMs or even linked to SQL. So Astoria is even one layer higher of, of abstraction than what we were just talking about. And what's nice about a story is it really handles uh, the whole Silverlight Azure question for you pretty nicely because you can, you know, wrap your data in this Astoria service and using the RESTful protocol, you can go in and grab that data and then work with it on the client. And that I thought that was a very interesting angle on it. I guess they, what the official name, Microsoft Data Services, like you know you've got a bad name when people use the code name to remember what the product is. Right. Uh, I think Microsoft's proposing that we go back to calling Windows Vista Longhorn uh, for the <laughs> for the opposite reason. But, um, <laughs> uh, here's an obvious one: link to SQL versus Entity Framework. An obvious one, insofar as what I meaning is what should developers choose, or, yeah. or what? Yeah. When when would you choose one over the other? I mean, you've heard then you know the link to SQL is sort of dying because the Entity Framework sort of took over that space. What? What I mean is there? What are the differences, and when would we use one of the over the other? Well, you know, here here are the key differences, right? So, link to SQL connects only to SQL Server, and this is probably what Richard was referring to at my Tech Ed demo, where I showed the SQL produced by uh, you know N Hibernate Entity Framework, Link to SQL, and other third party ORMs and things like that. And Link to SQL does the best job because it's hardwired to SQL Server. Best job meaning fastest, most performant. Not necessarily the fastest, most performant, unless you're dealing with really complex uh, T-SQL, but the cleanest, most efficient piece of T-SQL okay. is definitely produced by Link to SQL. Link to SQL does not support Oracle and other databases, and Link to SQL also only will support one-to-one table mapping. So it's a pretty limited um, feature set. However, if you are working on a small application, or forget small application, if you're working on an application whose requirements only require you to deal with the, the constraints I just gave you, you know, um, one-to-one table mapping and SQL Server, Link to SQL is a fine alternative. It, it's a fine, you know, thing to use. 
alternatively, the entity framework and just about every other third-party ORM out there will communicate to multiple databases and will also give you the opportunity to not just do one-to-one mapping. And a lot of ORMs, and now the Entity Framework 4.0, which I find funny, I think they're counting, you know, they went from one to four, because I think right. they were afraid to name it three, because, you know, three has been always the, the magical number at Microsoft. So I'm not sure why they've named it four. Four has got to be better than three, right? <laughs> four has got to be three plus one. Well, in reality, they named it that way, of course, because the Entity Framework is part of the .NET Framework 4.0, but it's good to get a good chuckle on that one. But the Entity Framework and, and the other most ORMs will allow you to actually start with a model and reverse engineer that to a database, something linked to SQL cannot do. And I actually have a problem with um, ORMs and the Entity Framework in that respect because they force you to think about the debate between should we do model first, meaning should we just have, you know, build all the domain objects and build our model, click a button, and then that will generate the database for us automatically. Or on the other side of that debate, you have the database people that say, ooh, we should definitely do the database first, click a button, and it forms all your class objects. And I kind of say you really need to kind of that both are wrong. You need to do that in some kind of collaboration. You need to build the database. You need to build the object layer, and they're going to need to talk to each other. And um, and and that's kind of where those um, ORMs are all evolving into that particular direction. So okay. I can't say always use this one or always use that one. You know, if you're obviously talking to Oracle and you need something other than one-to-one table mapping and you want to support Astoria, mm, you know, it looks like something like the NA framework or a third-party ORM will do the trick. If you want to, you know, just you're building something that's a nice, a nice application that's going to have uh, direct access to some SQL Server tables, one-to-one mapping, you might want to consider, you know, link to SQL. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whose support this show would not be possible. If you're a Silverlight or WPF developer, you've heard that having a single code base for your web and Windows user interface is becoming a hot topic. How about building a Silverlight application and then reusing the XAML and the code behind for a WPF application? Your customers will enjoy the identical user experience, and you will enjoy some free time as you have to write the code for both applications only once. This is not a scenario from the future. The guys from Telerik have developed a line-of-business demo application that shows you how to do it all. The application uses Telerik Silverlight and WPF suites, which represent two almost identical tool sets for building rich web and desktop applications. Both are derived from the same code base and share a common API, allowing nearly complete code reuse between WPF and Silverlight development. You got to check it out. Telerik.com slash sales dashboard. Hey, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, isn't Link to SQL dead? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing you hear a lot. Link to SQL is dead. Don't use it. And and, and to some degree, it's dead. I use this um, analogy in the election campaign. As I said, let's just say you had linked to Obama and linked to McCain. For those of you outside of the United States, you might have forgotten we actually had a presidential election last year, especially <laughs> you up in Canada, Richard. Uh, there actually was an election. It wasn't just, you know, one guy walking on water. But um, what happens is, imagine I said if linked to McCain was suddenly told to it had to report to link to Obama. That's kind of what happened inside of Microsoft. The link to SQL team has now been moved to kind of report and work with the link to entities team, or in reality is really the database access team. So what happens is that leads us to all believe that link to SQL is dead. And not only does it lead us to believe that link to SQL is dead, uh, Microsoft has pretty much come out and said it. I mean, they've, they've kind of put a better spin on it, but they've said it. I, I've repeated it saying by going and putting the link to SQL team to report to the link to entities team, in essence, will kill link to SQL. However, does that mean you shouldn't use it? Well, if you think about it, Link to SQL supports a number of features that Link to Entities does not. And Link to SQL uses the Link query syntax. So you could start working with Link to SQL and then port your application over to Link to Entities or some other ORM in the future if it was really dead, dead. 
And then what would happen is you, you haven't really lost much of your investment because the link syntax will be virtually identical. And, and that's the thing that I was showing in my tech ed session is, is the link syntax between some of these implementations was virtually identical. Okay. So there's, is there really no, if I'm a link to SQL guy and I'm, and I do want to move over to EEF, is it painful to move over? It's actually not that painful to be surprising. Now, if you're going to move over, you may, you might not be taking advantage of all of the features of EF, meaning is, you know, you're obviously going to do one-to-one table mapping to, to do the port and things like that. But the syntax itself is virtually identical. Um, I've noticed some small peculiarities when you, um, when you do that, meaning is you have some inappropriate link syntax, meaning your order by is before your where clause. Uh, what will happen right. is link to SQL will forgive you and link to entities will not. So then that order by becomes ignored. But those are very small, minor, I won't call them edge cases, but those are some very small, minor things. Those are the types of things that you have to fix as opposed to syntax. The syntax is virtually identical. It's not identical, but it's virtually identical. All right. Uh, and I don't want to do nothing but ORM discussion here. Right. Uh, because I think it's uh, there's more to it than this. Uh I, and I, you mentioned something sort of casually here about Astoria, which I think is incredibly compelling, this idea that through an interface like Astoria, I can build a Silverlight app that would talk to my database or would talk to Azure. That, to me, seems very cool. It is actually some very cool stuff. Astoria is one of the kind of coolest things that have come out of the data access debate or, or the data access, whatever you want to call it, you know, Microsoft's kind of big uh, cookbook of data access over the last couple of years. Yeah. And you can use one programming model. Let's just take a step back to what I just said. Richard asked me about, you know, if I'm in link to SQL, I want to move to link to entity framework, which would be linked to entities. Is it much of a change? I said, not really, because your investment in link is, is really much going to be, you know, transferred over. Same thing with when you think about using Astoria, you're using REST, and you're also going to be using the Atom Pub format, particularly um, in REST. So what will happen is you can then have one RESTful service and learn how to work with RESTful data and even use a link to ADO.net data services and on your client, when I'm talking about asynchronously. When you have all this together, it is all the same exact programming API. So meaning is I'm talking to Azure, I'm talking to Oracle, I'm talking to SQL Server, I'm talking to, as I mentioned before, just a collection and memory of, of ADO objects. If you're using Astoria as your intermediary between them, your programming interface on the client is the same. So it truly is universal data access in that respect. On the back end, of course, you have to implement either SQL Server-specific APIs or Oracle-specific specific APIs or Azure APIs, what have you. But on the client, asynchronously, when you're talking to these restful calls, you're really talking to the exact same API, no matter what the backend technology is. That's been the holy grail for, you know, 15, 20 years. And in some respects, at least on the client-side programming side, it has been achieved with Astoria. Only between those a couple of instances, but... Uh... Yeah, you're right. It's it's very flexible from there. I I just think nobody's celebrating this. Like it seems like a coup to me. I I tend to agree. I find it interesting that it hasn't really been kind of front page news, so to speak. But I think <laughs> <laughs> but I think what will happen is I think it to some degree got drowned out by the link to SQL versus entity framework debate that's been going on. Um, well, was going on when Astoria kind of came out. Because if you remember, Astoria was released about a year ago. It was released the same exact time as the entity framework. So we had all of the debates between whether the entity framework was a viable product or not. That was one debate. And then the second debate we had was, you know, link to SQL or entity framework. And I think missing from that whole discussion just drowned out was Astoria. And and, uh, you know, what people are forgetting is all of the Azure services, so to speak, um, internally, like at Microsoft, like how they built these Azure services, they used Astoria. Okay, right? So wow. if you're hitting, let's say, the Azure table service or the file service, like one of those things, anything in Azure that kind of produces a, a RESTful interface is actually using Astoria. And I think people just kind of, you know, it's an unsexy building block to some degree. So I think people just kind of forgot about it, to be honest with you. 
I like it when things stop being sexy because then they stop fooling around, right? It's really just how do we get the work done? And I want right. this just to work. I'm I'm with you. And you keep talking about restful, and and I and I just want don't want to presume that everybody knows what that means per se or why it's good. Well, so restful interface. What rest stands for is representational state transfer. And when you hear that, you might think it has something to do with the UI, and that's right. that could be anything from the case. So what what rest is is a protocol that is deliberately enforced and wedges itself into the HTTP protocol. So while you had web services that would do things like get and fetch, you would have to learn methods. Right? So, so here's a quiz for you, Richard and Carl. If I okay. created a web service, I called it Steve's House of Data, and you guys were going to call my web service, and it was going to produce the statistics for every New York Met base- baseball player, what would you have to do to get Carlos Beltran's batting average? I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't call it in the first place because I'm not a Mets fan. <laughs> okay. Okay. I would also include that evil team up in New England. Um, less evil than the Yankees, though. But I would include the Red Sox. So you wanted to get how many home runs did David Ortiz hit? How would you get that? It's a web service, not a restful in a, service. In a plain old web service, exactly. All right. So if it's a soap web service, you have to get the uh, Wizdle. And from the WSDL XML, you figure out what the fields are, and then you create a SOAP envelope, and then you uh, prepare a uh, – you call a method, and you pass the parameters. And um, and then you get back a SOAP message, SOAP result, uh, and then you have to parse through all that, and it's kind of hairy. That's why they have those uh, big proxy generators in Visual Studio for you to make it easy for you. Okay, and you're you're correct, and you and you said one very important thing. You have to call a method, and yes. you would understand what that method was by looking at my WSDL, the web service description language. So you would have to call the get player um, method that you might pass at the player ID, and you might pass at the I don't know, you know, the other statistic you're looking for. Right. Well, that's how web services work. You expose a bunch of methods, so it's action based. Right, so it's pretty much remote procedure calls. Right? right, you're basically calling a method on my machine. Okay, so it's, as I said, it's 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 set in. You could do it all over TCP/IP. You could do it over HTTP. Like SOAP, I'm sorry, like web services and SOAP goes out of its way right. to be protocol independent, even though we always use it over HTTP. You could use SMTP and POP3 if you want. Exactly. So REST kind of changes the rules by being more constrictive. And by being more constrictive, it takes advantage of those constrictions and then is actually more powerful. So REST only works over HTTP, and it's resource-based, not a remote procedure call, not a method. Right? So while web services are method and action-based, REST is URI and resource-based. So you would use plain old HTTP kind of um, stateless communication, like get, post, put, and delete, and through addressable resources, I would expose a service that I would have like, you know, steveservice.com slash players. And you would, and you put that, you type that into your browser, you call that with an HTTP get, right. and you would get back an XML in, in Atom Pub or whatever I choose to format it in, most likely something like Atom Pub or RSS or something like that. You would get a list of all the players. Right. And then you would say, you would then put player, then you would say, you know, steveservice.com slash players slash, and you would put that player ID, like player ID five, and that would be Carl Beltran and all of his stuff. No methods. It's all encoded the in the URL, all the parameters, just like we do standard gets and posts. Exactly. So that's why a web service like Flickr is so popular with, well, has embraced something like a RESTful service because it mimics the unique addressability of an individual photo. Right? So if you go look at photos of Richard and I trekking through, you know, Everest last year, you can go to like flickr.com slash my name slash the set name slash the photo ID. And you could do an HTTP delete if you had access and you would just delete that photo. You could do an HTTP um, put. And if you had access and you had, you know, you pushed it up with the binary, you could actually post the photo. Yeah. Right? So you're just using standard. So where, where if I wanted you to delete David Ortiz with a web server for my statistics database, right. you would have to call the delete player method or something like that. Yeah, and you'd also have to be authenticated, and then you'd have to, you know, 
all of that stuff, which adds complexity. And if you want to do transactions, oh my God, now we have more complexity. That's where you need SOAP. You are correct, because a, a rental service, you still have the, the necessary authentication authorization issues. Uh, you do not have transactional integrity in a, in a RESTful service. You can fake it to some degree, but you don't have it. Um, so that's, you know, to some degree, it's a bigger debate, you know, web services versus REST, as opposed to, you know, the original debate we were talking about, which was linked to SQL to entity, entity framework. You know, I would make the argument that, you know, REST is fairly generic, uh, insofar as that it, it puts itself into this um, kind of isolated area, meaning you can only use HTTP protocol. But by constraining itself to the HTTP protocol, um, you, you get a lot, of, a lot of familiar and simple things, meaning I can just use my standard you know, HTTP methods like get, put, post, delete. Well, it strikes me as very simple, very quick to use. You still can get authentication and some security through SSL. But, but think about it. You can still get authentication authorization. This, if you are hosting this, let's just, since this is a Microsoft audience, let's say you're hosting this on IIS. It is Astoria and this RESTful service is a, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's an ASP.NET host. So you can put it behind a web config that locks down using form security or using, you know, any, any type of, you know, standard ASP.NET security. Of course, if you're calling this programmatically, you'll have to pass those credentials in and use encryption, as you just said, with SSL. But I would argue that SSL is the second layer of security, meaning is your first layer of security will be your app, the same old application security that's enforced by the web config today. And your second layer would be on the web server with things like SSL and even IP blocking. If I want only Richard and Carl to view this RESTful service, I could, in theory, not only use standard ASP.NET authentication authorization, but I can restrict to just your IP addresses and then force you into an SSL conversation. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's just, it's, it works just like a website in that respect. When it, and I feel like the whole web service thing with all the WS star specs just got out of hand. Like it became unmanageable for, for regular mortals. I tend to agree, and I think that's one of the reasons why REST kind of evolved. Uh, REST has been around for about 10 years. Um, it came out of a Ph.D. dissertation. I believe the guy's name was Roy Fielding at UCLA Irvine, I believe, about 10 years ago in his doctoral dissertation. And, um, you know, looked at it as, P- as an academic thing, but what happened, the rise of the social networking sites, um, really, you know, Flickr was probably one of the first ones to implement a RESTful service, um, and then things like Amazon, and then obviously I said all the social networking sites like Twitter and Facebook and all those guys started letting all of their data out as a RESTful service as well. Much better than having to build some really complex WSDL, you know, WS star dot star, drive me crazy kind of thing. In your list, do you include code generators? Code generators insofar as what? You know, code uh, generators that generate data access code, like ADO.net code. I mean, yeah, I think it's a, that's a different conversation. That is not necessarily data access. That's just um, it depends on what the code produces. If it produces right. ADO.NET code, I would kind of list that under the ADO.NET category. If it if it produces, you know, link to SQL code or entity framework code or and Hibernate code, I would put them in those particular categories okay. for a code generation tool. All right. Uh, there, and there are other protocols that are more REST-like, like Atom. Even RSS to some degree, right? Well, actually, REST is a protocol. Atom and Atom Pub and RSS are actually all compatible with REST as the actual rendering device. Oh, I so see. meaning okay. is I can have a RESTful service, and it will actually spit back to you Atom Pub or RSS formatted data. And, and, um, and that's what the Entity Framework does. The Entity Framework will, will give you the data in either JSON or Atom Pub format. Okay, and, and and we haven't mentioned JSON before, but it, this is just the the JavaScript notation, right? So so JSON is a JavaScript notation language, which is far far more compact than doing your traditional kind of AJAX call, right? Because, you know, like AJAX was a term invented by an analyst, which I find funny. And what AJAX really is, 
is the ability to kind of, you know, on the client through, through JavaScript, call a web service, get some data, and then kind of redraw that page or do something with that information. Yeah. What we found after the world kind of fell in love with Ajax was about five, four or five years ago now, after the world fell in love with Ajax, for the obvious reasons, uh, Ajax is excellent, we realized that, ooh, this is kind of slow. You know, because as Carl said, that soap envelope becomes so unwieldy, and now we're parsing that soap envelope on the client, and what if the client happens to be an iPhone or something that doesn't have a lot of processing power, Right. but a lot of people have. So that's where JSON comes into play, because JSON is far more compact, and now you can do things with JSON like buying to an object real, real easily, right? Because you're basically getting the JavaScript, um, not- what, what the JavaScript notation language means, which JSON stands for, is I need to bind this data to this drop-down box. So it will give it to you in a nice, bindable, compact, almost the sheer minimum of, um, of kind of text that goes across the wire. So Google started doing it with Google Maps, and it really everyone started kind of um, following their lead on that. But back to your point is if you want your RESTful service to produce JSON, that's a, perfectly legal, and B, pretty darn easy to do. With, with Astoria, it is one little setting uh, when you actually, um, you know, go back and forth with your conversation, the client and the server. You just have your, you know, your application MIME type set it to JSON instead of XML, and JSON comes down the wire. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Have we missed any data access methods here? I mean, there's tons and tons of data access methods, right? How about how about data access anti-patterns? Things that we used to do that we shouldn't do anymore. Is there any is there any such thing? Well, I mean, there's always best practices, and I, I don't like the term anti-pattern because it it makes the assumption that you're right and I'm wrong. Mm-hmm, I could right. do something that is considered an anti-pattern, and it may actually work in the scenario I'm in. So it's context-sensitive. Good, good example is when I first started coding, I actually had to program in kicks on a mainframe. And, you know, you all heard the term spaghetti code and mainframe. And, and the rule of thumb, what's the first rule of mainframe programming? Thou shalt not use a go-sub statement, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Was it a go-sub or go-to? Go sub and return, right? So the problem is, in some situations, go sub was okay. I actually um, <laughs> did some work at a bank, which is still in business, shall remain nameless, about 15 years ago. And I was really writing, you know, integration code, but I had to dabble in kind of kicks at some point here and there. And you actually had to get managerial approval to, you know, write a go sub statement. And, you know, if you wanted to write any kind of modular code, code that we would consider good code today, right, you know, separation of concerns, you know, small methods, everything's kind of in a method, that method does one thing, one thing only. If you want to actually do that in COBOL, you have to use a go sub statement. I mean, that's the only way you really could do it back then. So what's interesting is I, I don't necessarily would want to go on record saying, here's an anti-pattern, you should never use it, because some I will either do one of two things. Someone is using it, and will listen to our advice, because then the three of us might laugh. Oh, never do X, Y, Z. The three of us laugh. And someone's using in their application, and for some reason, you know, we overlook that scenario, and it's working for that user, and then that user's going to rip it out and start all over or start questioning themselves. Or B, if I say this is an anti-pattern, we're going to, you know, I don't want to start some, like, religious war with somebody else. Um, I would say that the only anti-pattern is being an absolutist, is always doing the same thing the same way. Let the technology kind of, um, you know, choose the right technology for the right job, I guess, in that respect. Okay. Makes sense to me. Yeah, sure does. Uh, one more technology to sort of throw out there and see how this fits into context is the the RIA services, which have really been hooked to the Silverlight bandwagon. RIA services is actually a, a pretty amazing little piece of technology. And as you said, it's hooked to the Silverlight bandwagon, but I think it's kind of like how Astoria was... Um, you know, kind of forgotten about when Entity Framework had its, as it's, had its launch. I think RIA services, the fact that RIA services can also hook right into plain old regular ASP.NET is kind of ignored and forgotten about as well with pretty compelling results. Uh, for those people who don't know about RIA services, it's, it's an add-on to Silverlight 3. It won't ship with Silverlight 3. It'll ship shortly after. So I'm guessing it'll probably RTM, probably like early fall. I have no idea, but I've, I've been told that it's, quote, after, you know, the Silverlight launch. 
And what it allows you to do is have a have an object or, or a service, so to speak, on your in your web application, and then through a bunch of um, I'll just call it Microsoft magic, so to speak. There's some kind of code duplication, or, or really the code is kept in sync. There's a lot of proxies and other things that make all this magic happen for you that you can call that service asynchronously from the client. And it shields the user from a lot of the um, plumbing that I think is actually at the moment maybe stalling some of the Silverlight adoption. And, and the reason why I say that it's stalling some of the Silverlight adoption is because you know developers have to really start thinking asynchronously if they're going to be working with Silverlight. And, and as I said, as, we, as the original conversation we had, once we agreed to disagree about clustered indices, is um, when, you're, when you're dealing with an application that has a, a web service and you're in a kind of a Silverlight environment or you're in an Azure environment, you're going to have to use an asynchronous kind of methodology. Right. So, even if you're talking to Astoria, your link statements can get really weird because you have to call it, you have to assign a delegate, and then you have to catch the event when the delegate's done, and then you have to, you know, kind of make sure that the event itself is fired, and, and then you fill it all up. I've written a couple helper classes. A lot of people have written other types of helper classes that, and a lot of developers just said, hey, this isn't worth it. You know, I'm just going to stick to plain old, you know, whatever, you know, ASP.net or something else. But I think something like RIA services shields the developer from a lot of that unnecessarily complex, uh, it's not really super complex, but it's more complex than just, you know, opening a, up a command, executing a data reader and binding it to a grid. But it shields the developer from a lot of that and allows them to, to work asynchronously pretty easily and then um, work with data, um, you know, back and forth in a nice round-trip environment built-in validations and all that other stuff. Stephen, we're just about down to the end of the show. Is there anything else that uh, we've missed that we want to cover? Well, I, mean, I, I think that there are tons of great resources out there for developers to you know, learn new skills, especially in the data access area. I, I'd like to call out one tool. Uh, if, if you're learning Link for the first time, you can use something called yeah. LinkPad. It's a, it's a great tool uh, to kind of um, you know, connect to a database and just type in some link queries and have a visualization of the results. Okay. Where do you get that? Uh, you can get it from LinkPad.net, www.LinkPad.net. It's free. And if you really, really like it and want IntelliSense, you could pay a little extra, but it's a, it's a great tool. It connects the link to objects, link to SQL, Entity framework, and what I like about it is you can even type in regular SQL statements, and then so I can type in a SQL statement, get a result, and then I can keep that in one window, and then I can start typing, um, you know, some link queries into another window cool. and start comparing those results. Okay, great. Thanks, Stephen. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Same here, gentlemen. I'll catch you next uh, next time at Peppy's in New Haven. Sounds great. Sounds great to me. We'll get a meatball, onion, anchovy pizza and, and we'll, go into a food coma. And we'll only have to wait in line for two hours. That's, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. It's worth it. All right, man. Thanks again. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a